Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Marissa Canodal, and I'm a research assistant at the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm in the studio today with Professor Mary Wood, the Philip H. Knight Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the nationally acclaimed Environment and Natural Resources Law Program at the University of Oregon Law School of Law. There, she teaches courses on property law, natural resources law, public trust law, and federal Indian law, and has written extensively about issues related to climate change, natural resources, and native law. Her most recent book, Nature's Trust, Environmental Law for a New Ecological Age, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. Professor Wood, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Now, the preface of your book begins with you talking about your childhood in the Pacific Northwest, which is something I really identified with, um, where I grew up in Minnesota as the birthplace of my connection to the environment and my drive to want to protect and preserve it now and into the future. Can you elaborate on how the world of your childhood inspired the work that you do and how it contrasts with the world in which your children are growing up? Yes. Well, I grew up on the banks of the Columbia River at a chum spawning site. It was an Indian fishing camp uh, about 100 years prior to that and long before that. And uh, I grew up basically with nature surrounding me, and I would leave the house with my twin sister at daybreak and come back just before dark. And that was sort of the, the childhood that I had and that many people of my generation had, just out exploring nature and all of its beauty and having adventures. And when I was in high school, that all changed because a bridge was built across the Columbia River and masses of people came from Oregon into Washington and the whole countryside was developed and uh, built up in many, many subdivisions. And so I think that it's very sad that my kids, even though we still go there, it's still family property and it's a family home, but my kids will never really have the adventures that I had, never see what I saw Uh, We did protect our little piece, and the chum salmon still spawn there. But um, it's a sadness. It's a loss of of great uh, wealth, great beauty, and great inspiration, I think. You write that there is a, quote, illusion of environmental law, such that the very statute that were enacted to protect the environment are actually legalizing their destruction. Um, How can that be? (laughs) Well, I think that most of the American public believes that we have very strong environmental laws, and it is the case that we have the most extensive and complex system of environmental laws in the world. But the fact is, those environmental laws at the federal and state level have have really just turned into broad permitting schemes. And so whereas the laws were designed to protect the environment against damage, they've been turned by agencies into Uh, laws that are basically used to permit damage across the board. In many of the permit schemes um, studied, we find a 99% rate of permit approval. So not much is being denied out there. Environmental law has become, in a way, dangerous, uh, particularly because citizens don't know uh, that the purposes of environmental law have really been subverted. You also criticize federal agencies charged with 
implementing environmental laws, such as the Environmental Protection Agency, of collusion with industry. Where's the accountability being lost here? Uh, why are polluting industries and companies being prioritized over the public welfare and the environment? Well, it's, it's not just on the federal level. It's on the state level, too. Um, it's across most agencies, I believe. And the collusion is really institutionalized. It's, it's not as if you can put people into jail for corruption. It's become really more of a mindset that has developed over the past few decades. We've had statutory law now for 40 years. And industry, from the beginning, mounted massive anti-regulatory campaigns against every single agency that was dealing with the environment on the federal, state, and even local levels. And after time, as many books <clears throat> elaborate, the agencies just become captured uh, by the industries that they seek to regulate. How this actually happens, the mechanics of it, are very detailed, and I spent a lot of time in my book trying to, trying to describe it. Um, but it all really begins with campaign financing at the legislative level and um, in the political campaigns of the governors and the president of the United States. And then those leaders start appointing uh, what I call political operatives into the agencies that come from industry with an industry loyalty and industry mindset. And then the staffers who have joined the agencies to really serve the public and, and do good, uh, they become subject to this pressure, this coercion. Uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists has called EPA an agency under siege, because the pressure is so great for the staff, scientists, and others to just fall in line with what has become basically an industry agenda. So given these failures of environmental laws and agencies at the state and federal level, you describe Nature's Trust as a transformative framework to fundamentally redirect government's environmental policy from its present course of legalizing all of this damage to a project of epic restoration. So the question then is how will legal institutions respond not only to climate change and other environmental conditions, but to this industry hegemony in our political system? And also how will they that how will um, that they respond to the need to empower environmental democracy? Well, it's a very serious issue. It's an urgent issue. What we're really talking about is how to restore environmental democracy. And we only have three branches of government in this nation, and two have been very passive. One is the legislature, and that um, arguably has been quite co-opted by campaign financing and really has not played a role in environmental policy, at least not a productive role to protect resources. The other uh, branch is the courts. And so what we're talking about here, I think, is the courts have to be more active um, in supervising the agencies. Now, the environmental statutes give rise to certain claims, but the claims that we see in court all fall subject to a deference doctrine. The courts have long thought that the agencies were neutral, objective players, and so they have a doctrine of administrative deference, which gives undue um, credit, I think, to the uh, findings of agencies. The most politicized findings of agencies are masked as science. And so what courts really need to do is figure out their role in our system of democracy and understand that this uh, public trust is designed to protect the wealth that the citizens hold and that these are life systems supporting our survival, welfare, and prosperity at stake. And without judicial enforcement, you really don't have a trust at all. You have a tyranny. 
So um, it, it will be incumbent upon courts to step up as in their constitutional role and also legislators to realize that they too sit as trustees and the very taking of campaign contributions is quite problematic under a trust construct because it it injects bias in their decision making and it violates their fiduciary duty of loyalty towards the citizens. I also had a question about the politicization of science because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their first their working group one report for the latest assessment just came out in the fall, and then the second working group report on uh, climate vulnerability adaptation just came out this week. And you know, given their mandate to be policy relevant but not policy prescriptive, and also the need to always come to consensus around all of their publications, my question is: How does how do you see uh, I guess the relevance or the utility of that kind of science with consensus uh, mandate playing into the nature's trust framework. Yeah, the nature's trust framework begins with the number one overriding rule that nature's laws govern, that they are supreme. And so really our job in the environmental law area is to figure out what are nature's laws And then how do we adapt human activity to comply with those laws? Because if you don't comply with nature's laws, you either suffer or die. (laughs) So these are basic laws. So climate has its laws. Um, There's a certain certain energy balance in the atmosphere that we have to restore if we're going to uh, have a climate that will support our civilization. And that has to do with how much carbon is in the atmosphere. The IPCC, the UN Climate Panel, tries its best to determine goals for the planet in terms of limiting planetary heating. And as you say, it's a consensus-based process. It's often, often the studies are outdated the moment they come out because it takes so long to get that consensus. Um, and so it's very important to look to a more pluralistic model for determining what are nature's laws. Um, certainly to, to look at what the IPCC produces, but also to understand that there are constraints and look to others. Um, when we determine what is going to avoid climate crisis, a very important prescription has just been issued by an international team of scientists led by Dr. James Hansen, who was former uh, uh, head of Goddard's, uh, NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. And he and this international team developed a prescription for the planet that said we must reduce globally our carbon emissions by 6% a year across the globe starting in 2013. Here we sit in 2014, and we didn't reduce by 6% last year. So that number is going up, and the urgency is mind-blowing because the longer we delay, the the more that number goes up. In fact, if we delay till 2020 to start, that number would be 15% a year. And so I think most people don't realize this is an absolutely unthinkable moment in time that we are sitting in where if we delay much longer, it will not be possible to make the cuts that we need to make to restore uh, climate equilibrium. Uh, Every day counts. So there's a very narrow window of time to act in, really, and... I'm going to try and summarize the the legal principle underlying nature's trust and ask a clarifying question. So it draws on this longstanding legal principle that some natural resources are so vital to the public welfare 
that the government has an obligation as trustee to manage these resources for the citizens for the benefit as beneficiaries for their benefit. So beneficiaries in this framework are present and future generations of people. And my clarifying question is, is it possible to think of other animals um, and nature itself even as beneficiaries? And part of what got me thinking about that was the fact that there are a number of countries now incorporating the rights of nature into their very constitutions. Yes, and by all means. So the public trust, just to clarify, is, as you said, um, it's really the oldest principle of environmental law. It's found in many countries throughout the world, and um, it, it um, affirms public property rights in our resources that are crucial for survival. And these, I want to mention, are constitutionally based rights. Um, this is a doctrine that has been iterated by the Supreme Court of the United States on many occasions. Um, the, a plurality of the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court recently issued an opinion overturning a fracking statute that the Pennsylvania legislature had enacted, and the Supreme Court justice of that court said these are inherent inalienable rights that belong to all humankind. So we are within a rights-based framework that is linked to human survival, welfare, and prosperity. But that doesn't mean that, that there are not rights of nature as well. In fact, the most holistic conception of nature's trust is to integrate the rights of nature with the rights of human beings because we are all part of nature's community. And so in a sense, it would be very artificial to separate those two sets of rights. As a practical matter, though, you, you can't have lions coming into court and speaking for themselves. So, of course, the human beneficiaries of the trust assert these rights really on behalf of themselves and on behalf of all of nature. There's a quote that really caught my eye on page 105, and it's, environmental justice, democracy, and sustainability stand a meager chance of fruition in the face of a dispassionate citizenry, partly because one of my major areas of interest in research has been environmental and climate justice issues. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on the empowering relationship between nature's trust and the advancement of environmental justice and citizen environmental activism. Oh, <clears throat> very good. Um, all citizens have these public property rights. All citizens are beneficiaries of the public trust without distinction as to background, wealth, religion, race, or any of that. And so all beneficiaries stand absolutely equal under the public trust doctrine. That's very different from our political system and our, our system of private property rights. Only some sectors have influence within the political system, although we would probably like it to be otherwise. But the reality is that corporations have overriding influence. Um, and with our private property ownership, not everybody owns private property, but everybody has these public property rights. And so it is uh, the most egalitarian expression, I think, of environmental justice that you will currently find in the law. Most recently, that expression has been underscored by the case I mentioned uh, from Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, took, I think, great care to emphasize that in implementing the public trust or carrying out the public trust obligation, the legislature cannot favor one segment of the society over another. And in this case, 
Pennsylvania was clearly, through its legislature, favoring the fracking industry over citizens that resided in communities affected by fracking. So that favoritism, that that bias that we find absolutely now ingrained in the political system um, is, is untenable within a public trust framework. You also ask um, where to draw the line on ambitious restoration goals, given that the line of further resources damages has already been passed, and which inevitably, inevitably leads to a more philosophical question about what is restoration. Are we going back to a quote-unquote idealized past? What does that past look like? And I was wondering how you're using the term restoration. Yes. Well, uh, to step back just a moment, the the public trust does require that um, government not substantially impair resources. So that's the duty of protection. Now, as you pointed out, we have long passed the point of substantial impairment. There's there's damage to our climate that, that is well beyond that, for example. So when you ask how far do we restore something, certainly for, for some environmental media, you can look at environmental baselines, um, you can look at water quality and fisheries and say, well, they should be restored to the level that will support basic human interests and human needs. My, my point now is going to be a little more stark. We'll be lucky if we can uh, salvage, you know, massive, broad human survival, civilization, and well-being. We've got to focus now on the basics because this idealistic um, future of restoration I don't think is within the future of anyone living today. Uh, And that is because of climate change. Climate change is bringing such a stark reality to us that we really haven't... um, haven't confronted in mainstream society. Uh, but when you see the natural disasters occurring with such frequency and you look at the pictures of devastation, whether it's through floods or fires uh, or whatever, um, I think then you get a sense of uh, the future ahead. And restoration, if we're lucky, can mean, you know, basically a basic well-being. And climate change is... A global issue and we're not going to address it if we don't even though it has local impacts and we're not going to address it unless all countries really work together and you talk about how nature's trust framework can be extended beyond uh, the U.S. borders as well do nations have a sovereign trust obligation to responsibly manage the world's environmental assets um, for global citizens and theoretically could one nation or a citizen uh, sue another for violating the trust um, at the international level? Or alternatively, can this framework be used as leverage to speed up and improve the climate negotiation process? Well, the climate negotiation process has been, of course, an abysmal failure. And everybody kind of expects it to work the next time. Uh, But we've had years and years and years of effort. Something is dysfunctionally wrong with the climate negotiation process. And I believe what is wrong is that the same politicization that affects the domestic will of nations affects the climate negotiations. They are exactly what they purport to be, negotiations. They're devoid of obligation. And so we really have to get into place first the domestic obligation that requires action on the domestic level 
and then take that to the international level. In other words, you can't hope to have an international negotiation succeed if the nations don't have domestic obligation in place. So at, there's a, an approach right now that's been launched. Um, it's called atmospheric trust litigation, which brings the public trust principle into courts and also administrative agencies um, in not only this nation, but other nations of the world, because other nations, too, have this public trust doctrine. Atmospheric trust litigation seeks to uh, have domestic courts enforce the obligations of the governments to reduce the carbon emissions by that 6% that I talked about moments ago. And so this atmospheric trust litigation, in a sense, is... um, it's not a fallback, but it, it seeks to put the domestic obligation in place so that there can be meaningful uh, international negotiations. Because until you do that, people will just keep coming to the table and refusing to offer up anything. That was a beautiful segue um, to my next question because I've seen Stories of Trust, which features nine award-winning documentaries featuring youth from around the country that participate in atmospheric trust litigation. And my question was, how are these lawsuits progressing in the U.S.? And I know that the uh, campaign has, is trying to ex- expand to the international level as well. Yes, uh, the litigation campaign is orchestrated by a nonprofit organization called Our Children's Trust. And um, I'm not a part of that organization, so I don't have the day-to-day updates on the litigation. But if you go to the website, Our Children's Trust, that is where um, listeners can download those stories of trust that you just mentioned and learn about the youth plaintiffs in these lawsuits and get updates. I do know there's a very important hearing coming up. Uh, There's a lawsuit against the Obama administration for failing to take action on climate change that's comprehensive and tied to scientific parameters. Um, As we know, the Obama administration is pushing uh, oil and gas development and fracking and coal mining and all of that um, while taking a few few initiatives on climate is not nearly enough. And so our Children's Trust uh, plaintiffs sued the Obama administration, and that is um, being heard in the D.C. Circuit Federal Court, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. on May 2nd. And so listeners can get updates and information um, on the Our Children's Trust website. A group of law professors, the leading, many of the leading law professors in the country in environmental law, and um, one of the nation's most uh, reputable constitutional law scholars submitted an amicus brief supporting the youth plaintiffs in that litigation and expressing the constitutional foundation of the public trust right to an atmosphere that will support their survival. Because at issue here is really, um, as expressed in the briefs, the habitability of this nation decades from now. So uh, this constitutional right is, is quite, um, quite clearly laid out in the brief, and, and I would encourage listeners to look that up. I think that's posted, too, on the website of Our Children's Trust. Great. I'd, I'd like to end on a somewhat optimistic and active note. For those who agree that transformative changes are needed in the way humans understand, interact, and manage natural resources but are not necessarily interested in studying environmental law or becoming lawyers, uh, what role can they 
play in helping bring about these transformations? Well, that's, that's in a sense my favorite question to answer because um, this is all hands on deck time. It, as Paul Hawkins said, there's nothing that doesn't need to be remade. If we uh, really understood our circumstances, we would have something equivalent to a massive wartime mobilization ongoing right now. The best analogy is looking back to World War II, and nobody sat on the sidelines. Literally everybody stepped up and took action to help the national patriotic effort, and that's what we need today uh, for climate defense. It is a patriotic effort. It is an effort to protect our children and our grandchildren. What can people do? They find whatever talent they have and apply it to remake their communities in a sustainable way. So one person might go forth and and start an initiative for backyard gardens. Another person might go forth and get something passed through city council to greatly expand the bikeways or the transportation in that community. Another person might just take on eliminating styrofoam cups from their coffee shop. Entrepreneurs, business entrepreneurs, um, can be transforming their businesses as part of their job and usually saving money in the process by making their own businesses more sustainable. Churches are very much engaged in the climate fight. There are, in Eugene, Oregon, where I live, uh, gardens in in, um, church backyards now. Their church kitchens are using their kitchens for community canning endeavors to save food, uh, local food, over the winter and eliminate the use of cans and jars. So there's just the sky's the limit, and it's a very exciting time to live in because it creates purpose uh, in everybody's life, I think. Well, I was inspired by your book and by your work, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been an honor and a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.